Shared parenting does make it easy. I'm your host, Chris Batchelor, and this is the Parent Time Podcast. Parent Time Podcast is presented by National Parents Organization, a national nonprofit who is working hard to bring shared parenting nationwide. In today's show, we have Dr. Warren Farrell. He's here to talk to us today about the boy crisis in this country and shared parenting. Dr. Farrell's books are published in more than 50 countries and in 19 languages. His most recent, The Boy Crisis, which he co-authored with John Gray, was a finalist for the Indie Book Publishing Award. He's appeared on more than 1,000 TV shows, including Oprah and Barbara Walters, as well as by Peter Jennings, Charlie Ross, and Larry King. He's been featured in Forbes, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Dr. Farrell teaches couples communication courses around the country, and he speaks internationally on the global boy crisis, its causes, and solutions. With that, let's listen to my interview with Dr. Warren Farrell. Dr. Farrell, thank you so much for joining us today. The work that has been done over the years, especially in the area of um, parental alienation and exposing the, the, the crime that that is. And, and you have a, a long history with the National Parents Organization being on the board uh, previously, is that correct? Yes, uh, maybe a 50 to 100 year history, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've certainly been around these issues uh, for a long time. And uh, I wanted to start off today by just, uh, you know, starting off and, and uh, getting your take on shared parenting. And, and I know you've been around this for a long time. So it'd be interesting, I think, to see your perspective on um, how far things have come and, and where we, you know, where we still need to make some progress. Yes, as, as we as many of your people listening know, you know, in the, in the 1800s and so on, there was assumed that when there was a divorce that the father would be the one to be involved with the child primarily. And, um, and but more recently, especially since the feminist movement started um, having an impact about 50 years ago or so, um, increasingly there's been an assumption, uh, well, increasingly for a while, and then as a result of the work of NPO and other organizations like it, um, it's gone back a little bit toward a, a greater balance, but the, the bias has certainly been in the last half century um, that, um, that women have the right to children and men have to fight for children. Now, this doesn't mean that the average judge, if, if you asked him or her out of, out of session, um, do, does he or she think that the children do best with both parents? Uh, the average judge would say, yes, the child does best with both parents. I think that's probably true. But when a mother um, says that the father might be um, uh, dangerous, prone toward violence, um, you know, be um, um, calling her names and, the, and calling the na- you know, names um, um, or getting angry, uh, or she just felt threatened, um, something like that, and then the judge is in a difficult position, uh, which is, you know, the judge may actually see that, yes, listen, everybody in a relationship over a long period of time loses their temper, calls the other one names. But if this is the one in a hundred cases where the, the father might be um, you know, uh, out of control or um, what the mother is saying is not just her perception, but quite a reality, um, then um, it's all I'd have to do is make a mistake once and I could be uh, lose my position um, as a judge. And so that's because we have an instinct in, in the world uh, in biology to protect women. And when women and when somebody is involved in not protecting women, particularly if the judge is a male judge, uh, then um, he um, and, and or she 
but especially he can be very vulnerable as a judge. And so the judge has to sort of bend over backwards to um, pay attention to any fears that the mother may have, even if it's just a, even if it's a fear that has no um, actuality, uh, actual manifestation, or is is very credibly answered by a father. And so that's what makes parental alienation such a challenging um, experience because um, most judges do understand that the you know that if there's evidence of the mother speaking negatively about the father, um, that, that that's not a good thing. But few judges know how bad a thing it is, which means that um, when the child is looking in the mirror and um, and he, especially a boy, um, and he hears that his father is a narcissist and um, is maybe self-centered, is, is, um, um, is, uh, is ju just cares about himself, is somebody who's unreliable, is, irres uh, is irresponsible, is um, uh, a liar, um, this type of thing. Uh, the, the child is looking in the mirror and again, especially the boy child, and, and the boy child is seeing the body language of the father, seeing the nose of the father, the eyes of the father and is fearing that, well, maybe I am a narcissist. Well, you know, after all, I am looking in the mirror. Um, maybe, um, maybe I am a, a, a liar. I do remember when I did lie. Um, maybe I am inherently irresponsible like my dad is. But he can't say anything to his dad about, it. you know, mom said that you're a liar and you're irresponsible and you're a narcissist. You know, dad, talk to me about that because he's afraid that the dad, the dad will get angry. That will then create an argument between mom and dad. And then that will further destabilize the, the already destabilized relationship that, and he'll lose his security. And besides, dad will get angry at him. Mom will get angry at him for telling, you know, the, the talk, talking to dad about this. Conversely, if he talks to mom about this, then mom is feeling like, you know, wait, wait a minute, whose side are you on? Now your dad's side or mine. Um, and his primary relationship is with his mother, um, if, as in most cases after divorce. And so he's afraid to jeopardize his uh, primary relationship. It's like arguing to your, to your uh, employer about, you know, are you... Uh, really, um, uh, are you really, in fact, uh, telling the truth about that? Is this the right perception? Well, this is not a great way to get on your employer's best side. Um, and so he's caught between a rock and a hard place. And the daughter is also caught between a rock and a hard place because she does not want to see men that way. And if she does begin to see men that way, she begins to lose trust in males that she's dating. If she loses trust in males that she's dating, she begins to be fearful of how she can um, be, get proper male attention. And she tends to do one of two things. She tends to either be sexual before she's comfortable because she knows that's the one way um, she can get male's attention um, and beat out the other women by being sexual, be, you know, um, maybe before she's ready. And that's not good for her. Conversely, she thinks that she begins to not trust uh, men because she can't trust her father. And so she, she's afraid of being intimate to begin with. So I, I think that parental alienation is one of the most damaging forms of child abuse um, that has been way under um, recognized and undervalued. 
And unfortunately, the new movie that has come out, the documentary, the series on, on Woody Allen and suggesting that he uh, was a, um, a, a, an abuser of, of, the, of the children, um, that, that, had, that movie was very much tied in with, an, uh, with a suspicion of parental alienation by feminist groups, which was a very huge, mis uh, huge mistake of integrity for the Woody Allen movie to tie that into um, to, uh, denigrating the, um, the validity of parental alienation. Parental alienation is very real. I've been working with both fathers and mothers for a half century, and it, you know, and it is very common for the father and the mother to both feel negatively about the other partner. But we, what we know, though, from the work of Glynis Walker, um, Glynis Walker is a female uh, researcher uh, who did work, uh, who, uh, who discovered some of the depth of parental alienation by, ask, by interviewing children on the average of five years after divorce and asking the children, does your dad ever speak negatively about your mom so that you can hear it? Does your mom speak negatively about your dad? Do they both speak negatively about each other? Does neither speak negatively about each other? Only 10% said that they hadn't heard either speak negatively about each other. Um, but among the ones that the, the, the ones that said that one had spoken negatively about the other and not the vice versa, um, it was uh, a four and a half to one ratio of, of the children saying that their only their moms spoke negatively about their dads. Their dads did not speak negatively about their moms. Uh, unfortunately, in eleven percent of the cases, both sexes spoke um, negatively about each other. But the great majority of the cases, it was the, the moms that spoke negatively about the uh, the uh, dads. Now, if the children are talking to uh, researchers um, 10 years later, and about 80% of them say that, the, um, that, the, that, that one parent spoke negatively about the other, um, and that it was a four to a half to one ratio, moms to dads versus uh, dads to moms, then professionals going around saying that there is no such thing as parental alienation are being political and being political with our children's future lives is really a form of abuse in itself. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a real issue. And uh, now we have scales to be able to measure the severity of that. And uh, I mean, it ranges all the way from, you know, a one-time off, offhanded casual comment to a pattern, right? Um, and it, it's as, I think it when it becomes a pattern, we've seen that that's where it's most damaging. Uh, but, but, uh, certainly to not acknowledge it at all is, is a huge crime in itself. And, um, and I think people in our, you know, that, that have been against shared parenting, uh, have tried to, to tr pass that false narrative on. And, uh, we're just going to have to continue to, you know, educate judges and lawyers and, and the public about, uh, this thing. And, and yes, it is real. And yes, it has real consequences. And, um, I, have you, uh, have you seen any movement recently in, in any way that we've made a positive impact in, in the education side? I think so. Um, I have you know, noticed that there's a little bit more openness on the part of uh, judges to at least um, understand that shared parent, equally shared parenting is the preferred way to go. Uh, so we've, I think we've made movement on that. I think the Woody Allen movie has had a, a negative impact on sort of making us suspicious that parental alienation is anything more than just a, a father's 
a father's rights method of, um, of putting down mother. Uh, that is not accurate. It doesn't mean that you know any anything um, can be misused um, by either gender, and both genders do misuse the things that uh, that give them advantage, um, and that there's you know, there's no one that is pure from that as a gender. Uh, but but this is certainly um, a very um, a, a very damaging um, th um, phenomenon, and 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 the la the lack of understanding of all of the different ways that um, equal shared parenting is so important is also very crucial. So for example, when I did the research for the Boy Crisis book, I began to, you know, I, I looked through just thousands of studies and ended up coming up with more than, actually more than 70, but you know, 50 plus studies that were very reliably connected to uh, the lack of father involvement leading to um, the children doing much worse, but particularly the boy children doing much worse. And so, um, and, I, and there was such um, a need for people to understand this um, that I ended up creating an appendix in the Boy Crisis book that was just listed uh, more than 50 ways in which children uh, who have dad deprivation um, do considerably worse, both girl children and boy children, but the, uh, the damage is more intensely uh, with boy children, because at least the girl child has a female role model uh, that can help, and, and girls are much more likely to express their fears and express their feelings, and so a mother can see the tears and the and the you know the tone of voice that suggests that the girl is distressed, whereas boys are much more likely uh, trained and socialized to keep their feelings and fears to themselves, and 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 they don't have a male role model who can sense you know this is what I went through uh, when I was his age, this is what the this is about and uh, and feel um, comfortable being able to, to talk to dad about it um, and have it handled in, in dad style ways. Um, but, you know, some of the things that just really, um, you know, was, were very interesting was seeing that that children who grew up in wealthy communities that did not have their dads involved did a little bit worse on math, science and some other subjects than children who grew up in poor communities who did have dad involvement. So oftentimes we say, well, you know, dad involvement or lack thereof and the benefits of dad involvement are just because, you know, dads are more likely to be involved in uh, wealthier communities. It's a, it's a socioeconomic thing. Well, it turns out that when I did the research on that for the boy crisis, it turned out that it was not just a socioeconomic thing. And I began to see that suicide was, um, was connected more to lack of father involvement than any other single thing. I sort of began to see that there was, there were, the way we measured depression for girls was very well studied. And the way we did measured the, um, the indicators of suicide for girls was very well studied. And so I started contacting all of the, um, the agencies and uh, foundations that did studies on suicide and even though suicide is about four to five times more likely to be boy, uh, boys committing it than girls, the every single person I interviewed uh, uh, whose foundation was responsible for doing work on suicide said they could get not a single penny to study suicide among males, and usually not even to include males in their studies. Um, and so here's something that affects boys four to five times as much as it does girls. Um, and we don't have money to study it, which gives you a sense of a deeper problem. And the deeper problem is 
um, how um, biologically programmed we are uh, to care about protecting women, um, but uh, how biologically programmed we are to uh, feel that men are disposable and if men have a complaint, they're whining and whining feels to women in particular uh, and other men, um, like uh, it feels really, uh, you know, women don't fall in love with whining men. They fall in love with alpha men. And so when a man complains, he is seen by many women as whining. And when he uh, when he's seen as whining, it's for many women like a whining man is like um, uh, this nails scratching on a chalkboard. <laughs> it just it doesn't feel right. And this is part of our biology, you know. Um, in every part of animal species, um, women reproduced uh, with the alpha male whenever they could, um, and that and the, and we men, uh, we did everything we could to be that alpha male, uh, even though we were unbecoming human beings and just becoming human doings in the process. And so all of that is uninvestigated um, and is deeply behind uh, why uh, men are not uh, dads are not so understood. But when we but when we look more carefully, we realize that 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 dad's dad involvement is the solution or a primary solution to almost every single mental health problem, every single physical health problem like obesity, um, every single um, academic subject boys are falling behind in. And it's mostly when I looked at why, you know, why were boys falling behind girls in almost every academic subject, subject and especially in reading and writing, I found that it wasn't true for all boys, but it was true for that segment of boys that had a lack of father involvement. And so I started looking at um, that more, you know, deeply and so, so, saw that in all 53 of the largest developed nations, boys were falling behind girls in almost every academic subject or in all academic subjects, depending on the nation. And so when I looked more carefully at that, it wasn't true that all boys had that falling behind problem, but it was, but it was very disproportionately among dad deprived boys. And so uh, I started looking at, well, why is that? And I started uh, seeing that the, fa that the father and the mother, that the mother is, tends to be very good on average. Um, and there's exceptions to this rule and reverse, re reversal of roles is, is, you know, is you know, maybe true in 10% of the cases. Um, and so the mothers are usually very good at protecting children and very good at, at nurturing children's uh, talents. And so if a boy is good at singing um, or is, the daughter is good at singing, they'll say, sweetie, you know, you're, you, you could be a wonderful singer uh, or a wonderful musician or a wonderful, if I, maybe as a tall son, you could be a, you know, a basket, great basketball player. You know, you should you know, hone your skills on that. And the boy will say, okay, I feel very excited. Um, but usually... Um, he will end up not being able to focus on the discipline that is needed uh, to hone those skills. The dad is more likely to say, okay, you want to be a gymnast? To be a gymnast, sweetie, you know, to the daughter or, you know, son, um, to be, a, to be a, a gymnast or a, a great uh, basketball player, it's not just all fun. It doesn't come naturally. You've got to practice your drills over and over again. You've got to give up texting as much. You've got to give up playing video games. You've got to give up seeing people you want. A lot of your childhood is going to be lost if you want, in one way, if you want to be so good at something uh, that so many people want to be good at. 
And the, you know, the son will go, okay, okay. And, but then the dad is far more likely to enforce that. You know, son, if you want to, do, if you want to do that that way, then I'm going to, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have to st- give up those video games. And if you don't give them up, just tell me you don't want to be that NBA player. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll work on something different, but there's much more boundary enforcement um, from, that dads tend to do. And the boundary enforcement requires the child to do something that it doesn't want to do at the moment, but is good for its long-term goals. And that's postponed gratification. And we find that the biggest predictor of success or failure is postponed gratification. And so when the, the child has that, usually from the dad, and has that, the, that nurturing from the mom, uh, the, and the father and mother are communicating effectively with each other, they can produce for the child checks and balance parenting. And it's the checks and balance parenting where the mother says, uh, no, it's too, you're too young to climb the tree. And the dad says, you can climb the tree. And the mother says, wait a minute, we have a different message we're giving to our son here or daughter here. Um, you know, let um, and they work it out in front of the child and say, say, okay, you know, that you can climb the tree, but not too high and not on these branches. And you have to be out there, dad, uh, under the tree in case the child falls, you can cushion the fall. And so to make sure you're paying attention, let me take the, um, the cell phone from you. And they work out a deal that gives the child the best um, options of climbing the tree, all the advantages, which includes, by the way, an increase in IQ from climbing trees. I'll be happy to talk to you more about that, but just so many things I discovered in doing the research for the boy crisis that, that the, so many of the things that dads do, like roughhousing, like teasing, um, like uh, encouraging the children to take risks, like dropping them off at the playground and not being with them at the playground, all of these things have enormous advantages for the, for the children. But one of the reasons why we don't have equal shared parenting is that there's not a, that, that mothers don't know all of the reasons why, for example, roughhousing in, um, is likely to lead to the children being more empathetic. And I'm not blaming mothers on this because mothers can't hear what dads don't say. And I've never heard a dad say, you know, sweetie, I want a roughhouse with the kids. It'll really help them be more empathetic. And if the dad did say that, he better have his data available. Right. Um, because yeah. um, you know, because <laughs> you know, the, the counterintuitiveness of roughhousing and empathy um, are pre- is, pretty, um, um, is pretty counterintuitive. And so, and I didn't know that until I did the research on that for the boy crisis either. Yeah, I mean, certainly parenting is is a you know it's a it's a balance, right? And if you take one of the influences out of that balance, then the kids just just won't get that other side, and that's so important. Um, so I want to bring up here. Uh, I've got your uh, your website up here, and uh, you know we've got your author. You've got seven books out. Of course, the boy crisis is one that we most talk about. Uh, I think in the shared parenting uh, realms, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the boy crisis. And uh, just, uh, you know, what was the genesis of it? And, then, um, you know, what sort of, I, I know it's had great impact. So I'd like to, you know, hear you talk a little bit about that, about some of the impact that it's made. But uh, I, I think it's a fantastic book. It's a great read. And if you, you know, if you're one of our viewers out there and you haven't read the book, please, you know, get a copy of it, listen to it, uh, read it, that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, tell us a little bit more about the, the impact of the book and, and how it came about. Well, I, when I was, uh, many, some of your listeners know that um, I, my background is that I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City and spoke all around the world on behalf of women's issues. 
And a few times here and there, as I was speaking, like in Japan, it happened the first time, and a Japanese teacher, female, uh, came up to me afterwards and said, you know, Dr. Farrell, I really appreciate all the things you're saying about women and the struggles they're having and your enormous empathy for, for women. Um, but actually, in my classroom, uh, the boys are having more problems than the girls. Well, I began to hear this in Australia, in Canada, in the UK, in Germany. Um, and, you know, I started sort of increasingly paying attention, even though I was making my living from being empathetic to women. It was like, you know, maybe there's something else here besides empathy for women alone. And realizing that, you know, that boys were having struggles as well. And the more I looked into it, the more I saw that this isn't, this wasn't only just not only true, but it was true way beyond uh, what I had ever expected. So for example, um, boys' IQs were falling. Um, boys' sperm counts um, at the time uh, were dropping about 40%. By the time the um, Boy Crisis book was um, written, they were, had dropped 50%, and now they're down to 60% drop in sperm count, which of course, you know, like everything, and that's a good metaphor. Uh, sperm count, of course, impacts fertility. Fertility doesn't just impact men, it impacts the future generations um, and women and women's desire to have children um, and um, and couples desires to have children. And so, you know, um, like everything that affects boys, uh, you know, uh, we often the we in the feminist movement often looked at things, uh, things only from the feminist point of view and from the female point of view. And we completely miss the fact that um, you know, that we're all in the same family boat. And when only one sex wins, both sexes lose. Um, you know, women don't want boys who are losers. Uh, they don't look, they don't hunt for father, future fathers um, in unemployment lines or, you know, boys, uh, males today who are between the ages of uh, 28 and uh, 31 are 66% like, more likely to live with their parents at home. And girls don't go from uh, unemployment lines. And, and then when a, they meet a guy at a party, even if he's good looking and he says, you know, I want to take you home. Oh, um, why don't we go back to my place? And my place is his parents' basement. Uh, this does not inspire um, sexual feelings on the part of most um, young women. Um, and they, the reason it doesn't inspire sexual feelings, among other obvious reasons, is women uh, a sense on some deep level that they want a strong, independent, successful, purposeful, um, um, highly motivated males to be their the, the father for their children and so they select for those and and so when boys lose girls lose and when men lose women lose and i started to see that the feminist movement was really good at articulating the hashtag me too for for women but realized that a hashtag me too monologue um, is is not a good thing what is a good thing is a hashtag me too dialogue where the where in addition to women expressing their feelings, which has been more um, viable for um, for all of history, um, we we also encourage men to express their feelings and fears, which has been the opposite of viable throughout all of history. And so, if, if either sex needs to express their fears and feelings more, um, that's part of what you know. The feminists often complain about male toxicity. Well, male toxicity is disconnecting from your feelings and fears or includes that 
And we are not encouraging no feminists that I know of is saying, well, we also have to hear the male side of these things. Um, that, and so therefore there should be a hashtag Me Too dialogue, not a hashtag Me Too monologue. And HR, human resources, should not be called HR the way it's been operating. It should really be called H-E-R uh, because it's only women for the most part that report to um, to human resources. So it really should be H-E-R. And so all of these problems that men have that include male toxicity are being um, further um, magnified um, by our lack of encouragement of men to open up and say, I know that, um, uh, that that the, that the woman at work felt this way when this ha when this happened, but it's also let's look at before we fire the man for offending the woman, let's talk to the man and the woman together. Let's talk to them separately. Let's have them communicate with each other. Let's see where the misunderstandings are, and so let, let's not make bosses fearful of mentoring women uh, because of the fact that um, if they do, they're going to entering into a, a, a minefield. Of, you know, if, of, of offending her or not promoting her more quick, quickly enough or whatever. Um, and that, that works against women. It works against respecting women. It, it works against hiring women. And it works against firing women, which is not a good thing. If you're afraid to fire, you'll be afraid to hire. Yeah, I think uh, there's there, uh, there's so much to unpack there. Uh, I, but you did mention the feminist movement a couple of times, and I want to uh, talk just a little bit in more in depth about that. And, uh, you know, as an, an, a, a, what I've observed, at least for the feminist movement, is you really have two fractions right now. You have the sort of moderate fraction, which is, you know, men and women should be equal. And then you have this extremist faction where it's, uh, you know, the women want superiority over men, right? Uh, and I think that that fraction has also inspired another movement uh, called Men Going Their Own Way, MGTOW, uh, which I think is in the wrong direction to go in, right? Uh, where men just decide, well, I'm just not going to deal with women. I'm going to be single and, and just not deal with them at all. Uh, certainly that that's not helpful either, uh, you know, long-term for us as a society. Uh, but, you know, what, what's your thoughts on that and, and what have you observed? And, uh, you know, what can we do to, to sort of bring this back to center, I think? Yes, um, for many men, um, particularly the people who join Men Going Their Own Way and GTOW or incels, um, incels aren't voluntarily celibate, they're involuntarily celibate. Um, and men going their own way don't wish to go their own way. Uh, they just feel that the system is so um, structured against them uh, that when they put their penis in a woman's body, they're putting their uh, life in her hands. And that's not worth, and they don't want to put their life in their hands for, for an hour's worth of sexual satisfaction. And so they just say, I, I don't know a way around this. Now, this is not healthy for those men, and it's not healthy for anybody. And it doesn't mean that it's unhealthy. You know, there are some people that are, you know, programmed to want to be by themselves. That's fine. But to be doing that um, to um, because the society, it, you, you fear and feel that the society is so structured against you uh, that, that you can't... Um, uh, that, that, that you don't have, that you're not being listened to that you don't get due process uh, that is really um, very dangerous and we see this in universities in particular where there's things like microaggressions and campus uh, and, and cancel culture uh, that that are making it uh, very fearful of men men very fearful of um, participating in psychology or the humanities because in the social sciences they're 
surrounded with women who um, feel that that if they feel offended, uh, that they should um, be able to have um, be able to say so, and they should start out by being believed. And if there is a man that um, touches them on a date before they feel they're ready, um, and they're not really that um, engaged with the man in the long term, or uh, that they can accuse him of sexual harassment. And the policy is that the woman is to be believed. Um, and if the woman is to be believed, um, th that justifies their being in college and universities a lack of due process. And um, there is, you know, I talk in the Boy Crisis book about how damaging the lack of due process is uh, for our sons in universities um, who are, if they're accused of something because the woman is to be believed, and the, the man, it's justified that the man should not be able to have, be able to cross-examine uh, the woman because we don't want to, we don't want to um, jeopardize the woman's studies um, any more than they're uh, already jeopardized by her being upset by whatever um, offended her. And so her offense is treated with this enormous honor and his feelings of the hurts and pains of being um, potentially falsely accused or being misinterpreted about the accusation um, is so uh, great. So we've, we've, what we've done in universities is first of all, we've taken away the very essence of what a university is, which is you know, universities should be a place where anything can be said. I'm gonna repeat that, where anything can be said. And our job in the university is to question what is being said and to be curious about what is being said, to facilitate what is being said that we most disagree with and allow that to be in our heads in addition to the opposite of what was being said. Um, and to be able to ultimately not only have the different sides represented in a debate, but to have those different sides available to us in our own psyche to such a degree that we can draw on all sides of an argument. That's what a university should prepare a boy and a girl for. And that's the way we'll have the best nation, the best world um, possible. Um, not um, um, if, if you said the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong way in the wrong tone of voice, um, that you should have at least given me a trigger warning before you said it. Uh, that is the exact opposite of what a university should be. And that's the exact opposite of what will create true love true compassion between uh, between men and women. As you probably know, uh, Chris, I've done for the past 30 years a couples communication workshops. And one of the things that is really apparent to me is that um, everybody has, that everyone has a different way of looking at it, the exact same problem. Um, and, the, uh, and that different way, um, uh, when I, in the couples communication workshop, I hear the woman or the man, doesn't make any difference who starts, frame something that was their experience in such a way, which almost always involves, if it's a woman, the man doing something wrong and her feeling offended. If it's a man, it usually involves the woman doing something wrong and him feeling upset or offended, but he's more likely to keep it to himself. But when he does have a chance to have a safe environment to air it, he has those things about equally to the woman. And, but when they, when they both see each other's perspectives and rather than listening while forming their own responses in their mind, I can have them alter their biologically natural state of being defensive and hear each other's perspectives first 
which is a complex process because it is it it, it um, is in tension with our biological propensity to become defensive when we hear personal criticism. Um, but when uh, when we train couples to do that, they are able to hear see, see that there's that each person had the best intent most of the time, and the best intent was not being seen by the person that felt offended. And the love, um, I, I think it's, I can honestly say that people who follow the method that I present in the couples communication workshops and six months, a year later, if they follow that method, and they many do, most, most do, but not all, um, they end up feeling more deeply in love and oftentimes like they love each other as much as when they first met. Um, and that is just very gratifying to me. But it's also a metaphor of what we need to be doing uh, with every man and every woman needs to be doing with each other. And the difference, by the way, is not any different with gay couples. Uh, the gay couples that attend my workshops, they have the same misunderstandings about each other. And parents and children that attend as a couple, um, a couple is any two people that have a past that would like to have a future with better communication. Uh, the parent and the child sees the world from two different perspectives, but when the parent and child can fully relax and listen to the other person's vision without having their own vision um, go through their mind as their um, partner is talking, um, the, the, the end result is much more love and compassion for each other. And for children listening to their parents, much greater wisdom at a much earlier age. Well, that, yeah, that's a fantastic point. And I think a lot of us forget that to communicate effectively when there is conflict, you have to be vulnerable, right? And, um, you know, and, and as humans, it's hard for us to be vulnerable. And so uh, that makes, you know, communicating, you know, when, you know, when you have an issue, especially hard, um, you know, over just, you know, your normal everyday life. And so I think that's a great point to bring up. And people should just remember that it's, it's okay to be vulnerable. And, uh, you know, having the right environment to be vulnerable in is certainly uh, important if you're going to communicate uh, with, with your partner. Absolutely. And also in that line, very few people realize that anger is vulnerability's mask. And when we see somebody who's angry, if we, um, at, and particularly if they're angry at us, if it's, as we're feeling that anger and fearing that anger, if we can just use the word in our mind, wait a minute, this anger is coming from her or his vulnerability. And when you see it through the, the lens of potential vulnerability, your eyes soften, your body language becomes more relaxed, and you're more, more likely to say to your partner, my God, uh, that must have been really painful to you. Or that must have, you know, if you, you and I were brothers and you say, you know, you're the older brother, Warren, and I'm the younger brother. And, um, you know, dad was always favoring you and he really didn't pay that much attention to me. And I say, my goodness, you were the little sweetheart of the family. You got away with doing things at a much younger age than I did. Um, you know, what do you mean? And, and I'm only thinking about all your advantages and you're only thinking about my advantages. Uh, and, you know, and then I'm, if I'm interrupting you um, and, the, um, and, the, and then when you say something, I both interrupt you and I distort you. And you get angrier and angrier um, at me. And if I can just say, wait a minute, this is Chris. 
feeling vulnerable, feeling vulnerable that he wasn't loved by dad, feeling love, vulnerable that he didn't get the same attention, feeling vulnerable that, you know, that I was uh, always the role model in the family and, and, you know, and so on. And if I feel that vulnerability and I soften to you and I just say, Chris, tell me more about that. Oh my God, that must made made you feel so isolated, so lonely, so much like, you know, like, like you know, Big Warren uh, was always the center of attention. Um, and, you know, then um, you're, you're very unlikely to hit me or push, push me or shove me aside when I'm expressing, ask you to tell me more about how you're feeling. And I'm, my eyes and my body language is, is seeing your vulnerability. Whereas if I responded with anger and then interrupting and, and distorting everything you said, uh, the chances of us getting into a physical fight are um, fairly much, much increased. And if we, you know, when I train people with domestic, on domestic violence issues, you know, the, the, the first thing to do is to look at anger as vulnerabilities mask and how to listen to a person who is angry in such a way as to reduce the anger as opposed to increasing the anger. And so I've been interviewed by NPR and places like that. And they say, you know, how can you even be associated with uh, people like the men's rights movement? They're filled with haters. Um, and I say, the best thing to do to undo a hater is to listen to them, to feel for them, to ask them where they're vulnerable. Uh, that's, and, you know, and you who call yourself a progressive should be the, mo the, the most likely to be willing to be progressive by hearing people who are in pain rather than just um, calling them haters and then walking the other way and turning your back on them. That will not reduce their hatred. Yeah, that, that'll certainly just fuel it. And uh, well, we're, we're kind of running out of time here. I'd love to talk uh, for several more hours, but we've covered a lot of topics. Is there anything else uh, you want to talk about? I think maybe um, if you're, um, we glanced over a few things in the boy crisis, but um, if you were to read the boy crisis, I'd say, but you, but you like many people have a limited amount of time. Um, I suggest a couple of things. One is to focus on the differences between dad style parenting and mom style parenting. So you can explain compassionately to a mom what you contribute dads tend to contribute a lot of things um, without understanding that they um, what the value of them is and second st study the sections on family dinner nights and how to make sure that a family dinner night does not become a family dinner nightmare because if you know how to communicate with every member of your family um, by hearing them well um, your family will become what i call e pluribus unum the family will be one, one take one powerful experience um, uh, that helps each member of the family feel heard. Um, and so each one feels like a unique self. Therefore, many are in the family, but the family unit is um, uh, bringing out um, a, a possibility of each family member uh, being unified by the support it receives from each other. Uh, also look at, at the, uh, the material on uh, why dads are so important at every age, including pre, uh, including uh, births, prenatal births, uh, from prenatal births until adulthood. Um, even if your child has been raised without father involvement, what can be do, done after that? And I guess the final thing I'd say is that I'm getting as much positive response to the audible version of the book 
that I, in um, the last five chapters on ADHD, John Gray, the fellow who wrote Better From Mars, Women From Venus, um, it, we both read our sections of the book that we wrote. And so there's really a very, um, so don't, don't shy away from the audible version as well. It, it doesn't have all the footnotes in it, um, but many people find it um, um, much easier to take a car trip and listen to the book than it is um, to, um, to, to, to read every page, page of it. Yeah, I, I consume a lot of the books that I that I read uh, read are on Audible, and it's uh, it's absolutely fantastic to be able to get through that material without having to you know physically stop and and you know hold the book in your hand and turn the page. But uh, yeah, it's a, that's a great point. Um, so uh, let's see. Uh, so Dr. Farrell, tell us uh, how can people get a hold of you? You're on the web. Uh, you've got a web page, and you're on social media, I presume. I do. Um, probably the best way to get a hold of me is um, just uh, look at my website, warrenferrell.com. And the Ferrell is not F-E-R, but F-A-R-R-E-L-L. Uh, F-E-R is um, Will Ferrell, and he's a little funnier than I am. <laughs> and so um, and, and, uh, Amazon is the least expensive way to get the book. But if you have a bit more money, uh, support your local bookstore. Um, but right now, Amazon's having a sale on the Boy Prices book. So that's probably any, um, the least expensive way to get a hold of it. Well, fantastic. And uh, are there any books uh, in the pipe uh, for, that you're working on? There are. As you probably know, I wrote a book called The Myth of Male Power, and I'm probably going to rewrite, uh, update that book uh, to be called The Paradox of Male Power, um, looking at both the male experience of powerlessness and the female experience of powerlessness. And I'm also, um, I put the couples communication course on Zoom. And so um, the uh, I, I will be looking at that. Um, I'll be able to distribute that and distribute that. I want to, try to create a foundation to distribute that to poor communities as well. Uh, so every couple in a poor community that's having challenges will have a free copy of um, the, uh, that course that'll be called Role Mate to Soulmate. And if you're interested in that, just um, email me. My email is on the um, address is on the website at warren at warrenchild.com. And, um, and I'll um, let you know more about the details on the uh, role mate to soulmate couples course. Well, Dr. Farrell, thanks so much for joining us today. And we look to forward to seeing what you come up with here in the future. And, uh, and uh, we'll certainly uh, keep in touch as things uh, change in this movement. Thank, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure um, uh, talking with you. Now, that was recorded on video. So if you want to go ahead and watch the video, you can find the link in the show notes. It's on YouTube. And if you have any questions, you can contact National Parents Organization at sharedparenting.org. Don't forget to like National Parents Organization on social media. Just go ahead and do a Facebook search for National Parents Organization and smash the like button. You're also going to find several Facebook pages for different state chapters, so go ahead and like those pages as well. And don't forget, you can also follow National Parents Organization on Twitter or LinkedIn, the links to those social media sites are on the sharedparenting.org website. If you're passionate about shared parenting, the best thing you can do is get involved. And the best way to do that is by contacting your state chapter. If you head over to the sharedparenting.org website, you can find the links to your state chapter and then contact them directly to take action and volunteer. We could also use your help with donations. National Parents Organization is a nationally recognized nonprofit registered in Massachusetts. To donate, visit sharedparenting.org and click the Take Action and then Donate. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. 
Tell us what you think on social media or by going to the sharedparenting.org website and sending us a message. Fill out that contact form and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear about what you think about the show or what you want to hear on the show, those sorts of things. So go ahead and, and send us a message. Until the next episode, I'm your host, Chris Batchelor. Thanks for listening, and together we can help bring shared parenting nationwide.